been one of the coldest days on record, but New York City was slowly warming back to life after Allied troops defeated Germany and Japan, signaling the end of World War II. Excelsior, the state's motto, meaning ever upwards in Latin, was the prevailing attitude, especially as the city's booming music publishing business continued to expand and reinvent. Microphones, music stands, and recording cables littered the sprawling third floor of Manhattan's Pythian Temple on January 22, 1946. When the Knights of Pythias fraternal organization disbanded, the ornate building, a converted church with tall vaulted ceilings, became the ideal U.S. headquarters for British-founded Decca Records. Its recording studios were the launch pad for music's new sound to include Louis Armstrong's distinct reinterpretation of great American standards, as well as Louis' contemporary, the great Billie Holiday. Dubbed Lady Day by dear friend and musician Lester Young, Billie was at the height of her career in 1946. She grew up Eleanora Fagan in jazz-soaked Baltimore of the 1920s, but became Billie Holiday at age 18 as she made her mark during New York City's Harlem Renaissance. She had a style all her own, which became the defining and enduring voice of jazz. Her intentional articulation allowed for a lingering of each lyric and consequently a deeper impact of the meaning of those words in song. She uniquely stretched words and phrases to create swing combined with offbeat timing that resulted in unique arrangements. Of her own admission, she needed a personal connection to the song she sang. Perhaps that emotional quality is what made her style so compelling. The song she sang mirrored the circumstances of her life, and as such, she was able to bring them to life in such a way that the audience was also living them as well. She once said, I don't think I'm singing. I feel like I'm playing a horn. What comes out is what I feel. The whole basis of my singing is feeling. Unless I feel something, I can't sing. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, she grew in notoriety as she toured with Benny Goodman, Teddy Wilson, the Count Basie Orchestra, and as the first Black female lead vocalist of an all-white men's band with Artie Shaw. Additionally, she wrote and recorded her own songs and sought out music that spoke truth about the core of humanity, including God Bless the Child, one of her most beloved tunes, and also Strange Fruit by Abel Maripol, under his pseudonym Lewis Allen, from a poem protesting the lynching of Black Americans. She was an unstoppable force, suited for top billing across the United States and becoming one of the top recording artists in 1944 when she signed with prestigious Decca Records, cutting still more classics and even a couple of duets with her first musical hero, Louis Armstrong. On this particular January day in Decca's historic recording studio, Billie is once again the only woman in a room filled with male musicians. Encircling her is saxophonist Bill Stegmeier and his orchestra of nine brass players, and with a team of recording engineers in earshot from a control room. An elegant mink coat is slung over her shoulders, and she's perched on a stool in front of a microphone, hanging at eye level of where her trademark gardenias usually adorned her hair. Emerging from a cloud of cigarette smoke that hung thick in the air, a lanky young man nervously made his way across the vast studio floor to Lady Day. 
From the age of 12, the now 26-year-old Irvin Drake had a small string of success since he began peddling his compositions as a songwriter at the epicenter of New York City's publishing world, infamously known as Tin Pan Alley. While the piece he was presenting for Lady Day's consideration wasn't his musical composition, it did contain his lyrics. A heartfelt outpouring of words after a young showgirl named Edith Bean, whom he regarded as the love of his life, left him for, quote, these Wall Street types, he famously later recalled. Feeling like he couldn't compete, he withdrew from her life and fell into a pattern of sleepless nights. One day, in a busy, crowded building along Tin Pan Alley, bustling with a cacophony of songwriters workshopping tunes in nearly every room, he halted immediately when he heard a particularly haunting melody lilting from one of the pianos. He later said, It hit me, smack! This is exactly what I felt when Edith left me. So in 20 minutes, I wrote the whole lyric to Good Morning Heartache. Just a few days later, he was tasked with handing it to Billie Holiday by song promoter and producer Dan Fisher. Enamored, there was something about the melody and the lyrics that immediately spoke to Billie. She insisted on recording it with a string orchestra for the first time in her career asking Bill Stegmeier to bring in four string players on the spot. And she also asked Irvin to remain at her side as she rose to the microphone to record the piece. He later shared, I was right next to Lady Day. She was standing at the microphone and I was on a chair within arm's length. She did it in one take and it was marvelous. Good Morning Heartache was released as a single by Decca to critical and public acclaim, becoming one of Billie Holiday's signature tunes throughout her storied career. It is also widely regarded as one of Billie Holiday's finest recordings. Curiously and delightfully, Side B of that release also debuted a song with words and music by the same composer, titled No Good Man. Who was this mysterious musical composer whose haunting melodies captured the spellbinding essence and singular style of Billie Holiday? It was none other than a ghost. Let's unlock today's story, shall we? Welcome to the Virtuosa Society podcast, where I'll be diving into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations that were born from various shared struggles between female creatives. We're going to unlock the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood beyond the missing pages in history books, to the nuanced truths and realities and, and revelations that have unlocked true creativity in women, all in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic, creative, non-linear lives. I'm Katie Harmon, your host. I'm insatiably curious, a lifelong seeker and a storyteller, primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half of my life now. <laughs> I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate, both foundational experiences from which I built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women by women and for women. Let's unlock today's story, shall we? 
In the heart of Manhattan, New York City, at the turn of the 19th century into the immigration and development boom of the early 20th century, Tin Pan Alley became the epicenter of the prolific music publishing business. It wasn't an actual alley, but a collection of music publishers, songwriters, and musicians centered around West 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, what's now considered the Flatiron District. Newspaper reporter Monroe Rosenfield coined the name Tin Pan Alley to describe the raucous sound of numerous pianos being played at once in publishers' demo rooms. The noise would spill into the streets, creating an atmosphere electric with creativity. This bustling energy gave rise to the birth of American popular music, a melting pot of styles, and a reflection of the nation's diverse cultural influences. Until the establishment of Tin Pan Alley, though, copyright control for songs in the United States was lax, allowing numerous publishers to print their own versions of popular melodies. This system left many composers in poverty, despite their song's popularity. By the late 1800s, stronger copyright laws led to collaboration between songwriters, composers, lyricists, and publishers for mutual financial benefit. Tin Pan Alley initially focused on melodramatic ballads and comic novelty songs for vaudeville, and then incorporated popular styles like the cakewalk and ragtime. <laughs> the primary aim, though, was to create songs that amateur performers or small-town bands could play from printed music. This approach couldn't capture the improvisational and nuanced aspects of things like jazz and blues, though. Not yet, anyway. Tin Pan Alley's influence began to wane with the onset of the Great Depression in the 1930s, when phonographs and radio overtook sheet music as the driving force of popular music. The growth of cinema, radio, and urbanization contributed to Tin Pan Alley's decline, as people could access music directly in their homes now. However, music publishing still played a crucial role in finding creating, marketing, and selling popular songs, leading the industry to adapt and evolve with the changing trends and business models. As the 20th century progressed, mere blocks from Tin Pan Alley, a new and exciting artistic movement was sweeping across Harlem. Known as the Harlem Renaissance, it was a cultural and intellectual explosion in the African-American community. The 1920s and 1930s were a time of artistic innovation across Harlem, where literature, art, dance, and music flourished. It was a celebration of Black culture and an assertion of their rightful place in the American cultural landscape. Jazz, blues, and gospel music were at the heart of the Harlem Renaissance, and artists like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and Billie Holiday were shining stars of the era. The music of Harlem Renaissance resonated with authenticity, capturing the spirit and experiences of Black Americans and lifting an entire nation ravaged by the Great Depression. As the worlds of Tin Pan Alley and the Harlem Renaissance began to intersect, a vibrant cross-pollination of styles gave birth to a new sound that would forever change the American musical landscape. The songwriters and musicians of Tin Pan Alley started to incorporate elements of jazz, blues, and gospel into their compositions. The collision of these two incredible movements set off a new wave of popular songs written by a more diverse pool of songwriters to include women. 
The pull to make it big in the Big Apple was magnetic for young pianist and songwriter Irene Higginbotham. Hailing from Worcester, Massachusetts, but raised in Atlanta, Georgia by her father, Garnet Higginbotham Sr., after her mother, Hart Jones, tragically died in childbirth. Irene started playing piano at five, composed her first song at 13, and was a concert pianist at 15. She was educated in the famous Atlanta University Laboratory High School. No doubt her uncle, J.C. Higginbotham, a renowned jazz trombonist, had an influence on her decision to move to New York City to pursue music professionally. Getting her feet wet in classic New York City fashion, Higginbotham first pursued New York Business School to get work as a stenographer. But never far from the pursuit of her dream, she quickly became a music student of famed composers Kemper Harold and Frederick Hall. Honing her songwriting skills and writing a variety of chamber music and orchestral works, mostly authored under the pseudonym Hart Jones, the name of her deceased mother. But her sights were firmly set on Tin Pan Alley, and there she quickly flourished. By 1940, at just 22 years old, she was residing at 369 West 116th Street, New York, New York, and her official job title in the 1940 census was, quote, songwriter in the publishing industry. Early on, she was able to get some songs published and performed by some of the most notable big bands of the day, including Benny Goodman, Stan Kenton, and Duke Ellington. For Goodman, she wrote the song, That Did It, Marie, when she was 23 years old a song performed by Goodman's lead singer, Peggy Lee, in November 1941. For Stan Kenton, she wrote the song, Are You Living, Old Man?, a song for all of the young 1940s hipsters, quote-unquote. <laughs> Red Evans and Abner Silver wrote the lyrics to that song, and Onita O'Day sang it. And for Duke Ellington and his orchestra, she wrote the song, It's Mad, 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 sung by Dolores Parker. She also wrote songs for individual artists not working in the big band setting. Some of these songs would go on to be popular beyond the 1940s, just because of the artist who was initially tied to it. Not certainly the case for This Will Make You Laugh, performed by Nat King Cole and the King Cole Trio in 1941. You didn't see it through All the fools Adept at so many genres and in demand as a quick writer, she also contributed songs to the comedy act Stump and Stumpy. And given her skills as a composer, she was also prevailed upon as a copyist. One of her best known roles in this capacity is her work on the book Boogie Woogie Land, an album of selected Boogie Woogie favorites, old and new for the piano, compiled and edited by Sammy Price. Published by Edward B. Marks Music Corporation in 1944, the inscription written beneath Irene Higginbotham's photograph reads, quote, the girl who adapted both Sammy Price's original solos and the Marks Standard Tunes album. She started composing at age five and has written more than 1,000 tunes. <laughs> In 1944, at age 26, she joined the newly formed American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, now known as ASCAP, and she had already written and composed nearly 50 published songs. But being one of only a handful of women and a young, gifted Black woman in a sea of white male composers clamoring for publishing fortune and fame on Tin Pan Alley... Irene's true compositional history soon became one of the greatest mysteries of the publishing industry, and she became as elusive as a ghost. 
Around 1944, she began working for Joe Davis, whose activities in the music business included management, A&R, running record labels, publishing, and songwriting. For Joe Davis, duplicity with songwriting credits was simply a way of collecting publishing money without revealing whose pocket it was going to. One obvious advantage being that funds would thus accumulate in a tidy row of smaller pools rather than in one enormous one that might be heavily taxed. Under Joe, she continued to write in the boogie-woogie genre with a number of jump blues tunes for the band Steve Gibson and the Red Caps. Like the song Boogie Woogie on a Saturday Night. The Red Caps were an R&B group that paved the way for early rock and roll groups like Bill Haley and his Comets. Suspiciously, around this time, the name Glenn Gibson began to pop up as the composer of material in styles such as classic blues, jazz, R&B, and doo-wop. Biographer Eugene Chadbourne said, Glenn Gibson, hmm. Sounds like a simple, straight-ahead, all-American name, perfect for a roots rocker. There are rock mammals of various stripes with this name, but in terms of longevity in the music business, nothing beats the Glenn Gibson who never existed beyond a name on paper. To suggest that the name was larger than life is totally appropriate, since Glenn Gibson represented the publishing interests of more than one person. For a while, Glenn Gibson was Irene Higginbotham. For Joe Davis to place material with competing performing rights societies, ASCAP and BMI, Irene wrote in the shadow of the pseudonym Glenn Gibson for almost a decade. It's easy to scratch your head at this subterfuge and also wonder if it was a convenient way to conceal that the gifted composer was actually a young Black woman. But Irene wasn't the lone ghost among a hidden in plain sight society of fellow female composers working tirelessly beneath the banner of men's names on Tin Pan Alley. And in 1946, the veil slowly began to lift. A native of New York City and daughter of vaudeville actor Lou Fields, songwriter Dorothy Fields got her start on Tin Pan Alley at the age of 22 when she met the popular song composer J. Fred Coots, who proposed that the two began writing songs together. But nothing actually came out of this interaction. However, Coots introduced Fields to another composer and song plugger, Jimmy McHugh, who would become her longtime songwriting partner. Her career as a professional songwriter took off in 1928 when she wrote lyrics for Blackbirds of 1928, starring songstress Adelaide Hall. The show became a runaway Broadway hit, as did the show's most popular tune, I Must Have That Man. He treats me awful each time that we meet. It's just unlawful how that boy can cheat. Billie Holiday covered that tune when she toured with Teddy Wilson and his orchestra in 1937. As Dorothy's songwriting credits grew, so did the list of male composers that were frequently headlined above hers. Songs from this period include I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Exactly Like You, and On the Sunny Side of the Street. During the latter 1920s, she and McHugh wrote specialty numbers for the various Cotton Club reviews, many of which were recorded by Duke Ellington. 
In the mid-1930s, Dorothy started to write lyrics for films and collaborated with the great Jerome Kern on the movie version of Roberta and their greatest success, Swing Time. The song, The Way You Look Tonight, earned the Fields Kern team an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1936. Afterward, she returned to New York to work on Broadway shows, but now exclusively as a librettist, first with Arthur Schwartz on Stars in Your Eyes, and then with her brother Herbert Fields, with whom she wrote the books for three Cole Porter shows. Let's face it, Something for the Boys and Mexican Hayride. In 1945, Fields approached Rodgers and Hammerstein with an idea for a new musical based on the life of famous female sharpshooter Annie Oakley. They liked the idea and agreed to produce the show conjointly. Kern and Fields were signed on to write the songs in the show. But tragically, Kern died before the two were able to begin work on the project, and Irving Berlin was hired to replace him. Together, she and her brother Herbert wrote the book and lyrics, while Berlin provided all the music. Anna Get Your Gun premiered on Broadway in May 1946 to wild success, starring Ethel Merman and running for 1,147 performances. However, Dorothy wasn't credited for the show until several years later during the revival, and Irving Berlin is primarily cited for the success of the show. Interestingly, Nebraska native Anne Rennell's journey into the songwriting world of Tin Pan Alley began with a unique opportunity. An interview with wildly popular composer George Gershwin during her time as an editor for Radcliffe College's newspaper. This encounter led her to working as Gershwin's rehearsal pianist and in 1925 offered her an entry into the famed halls of Tin Pan Alley, Broadway, and beyond. Simultaneously, she ventured into teaching and vocal coaching while continuing to refine her songwriting skills. A rarity of her time, Rennell was proficient in both composing lyrics and music. She made her initial mark in the music industry with the composition Baby's Birthday Party in 1930. However, it was her 1932 creation, Willow Weep for Me, dedicated to George Gershwin in memory of the lovely willow trees on the Radcliffe campus that became her greatest success. Willow weep for me Willow weep for me it became a long-standing and beloved jazz and pop standard recorded by numerous artists over the years, including the great Billie Holiday. In 1933, Anne Rennell collaborated with Disney composer Frank Churchill on the hit song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Disney's first significant musical success. Her contributions to this song remain somewhat disputed, though, along with the hundreds of pieces she contributed as background music for various Disney animated shorts, because they were regularly attributed to another male colleague, Paul Smith. She left Disney to delve into full film scores with her notable work on the story of G.I. Joe, earning her two Oscar nominations in 1946 for Best Song and best score. Going back to that fateful January in 1946, when Billie Holiday recorded Good Morning Heartache in one glorious take, was also a catalyst for Irene Higginbotham to step out from behind Glenn Gibson. 
For the first time in nearly two years, she was fully awarded credit by Billy and Decca for both songs on both sides. But the ghost of Glenn Gibson would live on. Around 1954, Glenn Gibson reemerged as the pseudonym of Bertha Knapp, also known as Bert Knapp, a.k.a. Phoebe Snow, a.k.a. Rinky Scott Jones, a.k.a. Adrian Garbalacond. Yep. <laughs> Biographer Eugene Chadbourne truly said it best when he wrote, quote, The desire to have someone named Rinky Scott Jones actually exist is understandable. Alas, no Rinky. <laughs> the unwielding name was only one in a collection of aliases used by a woman named Bertha Knapp. Bertha Davis, subsequent to her marriage to Joe Davis. This was the second wife named Bertha for the A&R man, record producer, and notorious conniver in matters of song publishing. Yes, the very one who gave Irene Higginbotham the pseudonym of Glenn Gibson in the first place. <laughs> he, too, had a whole series of songwriting aliases, but not enough to cover all the deals he had going. Or maybe he just liked inventing people. But in the cases of both Berthas, he carried out his strong desires to utilize them as publishing tools. Bertha Knapp was already in the music business, so these shenanigans couldn't have been too surprising. Her brother, Jack Knapp, was a big shot at the DECA label, which is where this living force behind the Rinky Scott Jones and Glenn Gibson pseudonyms were working when she met Davis. Ten years after first recording Good Morning Heartache, Billy took another pass at the song for arguably what would become her most famous album, Lady Sings the Blues. It was meant to be a collection of meaningful pieces synonymous with her raw memoir of the same title published in 1956. She wrote, when you sing, always tell the truth. During that tumultuous decade between 1946 and 1956, she had been arrested and put on trial for drug possession, serving one year in prison, and was finally released in 1948. She then endured a string of abusive relationships, another drug-related arrest, and her health began to decline. But she remained a powerhouse performer, wholly devoted to her craft. She sold out Carnegie Hall appeared on Broadway in a show created especially for her, toured Europe to wild success, and continued to write and record new music. Although Billy's voice was starting to show signs of deterioration, her commitment to tell the truth was beautifully evident in the tracks she chose for Lady Sings the Blues. Over a series of sessions for Verve Records in both Los Angeles and New York City, with a small band that included tenor saxophone, trumpet, piano, and guitar, she recorded 15 tracks, but only 13 made the final cut. The remaining three were actually added when the album was re-released on CD years later. Most notably, three of the pieces were written by Billy herself. To include the title track, Lady Sings the Blues, her famous God Bless the Child, and Stormy Blues. Additionally, both of Irene Higginbotham's pieces from 1946 were included, Good Morning Heartache and No Good Man, as was Dorothy Field's I Must Have That Man and Anne Rennell's Willow Weep for Me. 
The album was an emotive, lyrical, and musical tour de force. This album is an enduring, visceral reminder of the remarkable convergence of the talents of Irene, Dorothy, and Anne through the singular vocal interpretation of Billie Holiday. Four formative women of Tin Pan Alley who changed the landscape of music forever on one album. In 1958, Bill Haley and the Comets created the final recording at Decca Spacious Pythian Temple Studio, their sound ushering in the age of rock and roll, and the doors of Tin Pen Alley forever closed. Within a year, Billie Holiday died at the age of 44. With her and her indelible legacy, the ghosts of Tin Pen Alley were laid to rest. In 2021, I had the great honor of seeing and studying Anne Rennell's original scores in person, thanks to the generosity of the Special Collections Department at the New York Public Library, where her entire musical estate is very carefully preserved. My hands enrobed in white gloves, I carefully poured over each piece of sheet music and personal notes and was taken aback by the evidence she carefully kept to show that her work for Walt Disney had been too often misattributed to Paul Smith. I couldn't believe what I was seeing and it made me so sad and angry. It was also one of the catalysts for telling Irene and Dorothy's stories as well. As I walked the same New York City streets as these remarkable women, and as I passed through the Flatiron District, where they once worked tirelessly on Tin Pan Alley, I could almost hear their music spilling out onto the streets, as Monroe Rosenfeld had once described. But they were ghosts to me no longer. Instead, I had the great fortune of not only acknowledging their prolific contribution to American music, but also honoring their existence by assuring that their names were shared from my lips alongside their accomplishments. On that same trip, after two heady days in the Special Collections Department, (laughs) I spontaneously popped into famed Birdland Jazz Club to catch Jim Caruso's Cast Party, a delightful weekly open mic night where you never know who's who of the Broadway, cabaret, jazz, or recording world may share a tune or two. It's so fun. So fun. Highly recommend. To my absolute thrill, Broadway and cabaret star Natalie Douglas stepped up to the mic that night and promptly received standing ovations and appreciative hoots and hollers from the ecstatic crowd, myself included. Natalie is no stranger to the Great American Songbook of Tim Pan Alley and is also one of the foremost interpreters of the music of Irene Higginbotham, Billie Holiday, and the great leading ladies of jazz. It was therefore an honor and a complete privilege to share a conversation with her about her extraordinary life and career, where she poured out insight about the industry, interpretation of song, the twists and turns of her family life, her tried and true cabaret techniques, the importance of representation in theater, how to truly support Black artists, and the legacy of Irene Higginbotham. Take a listen to a snippet of our conversation. Uh, One of the things that fascinates me about her is that she actually did work at Tin Pan Alley. Like she, she worked in those buildings 
with the guys who were working in those buildings. So, like, I, I wonder what her daily life was like showing up. And, you know, she was obviously a black woman. She, it's not that she passed. You know, she looked like a black woman. And they all knew it. And they also knew that she was publishing things under her, not her own name. Um, so what was that like? Like, did they go have lunch and chit chat about that? Or, you know, or did somebody say, oh, my God, I love the new song, Irene, you know, Gershwin, like, you know, great song, Irene. Um, shame you can't put your name on it. Like, I just I wonder what the vibe was about that, because that because that wasn't the reality for them. I mean, some of them had changed their very Jewish sounding names to something more Americanized. But they didn't have to pretend to be a whole other person. Yes. You know, they were still men. They didn't have to pretend they were another gender. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to be invisible. They could show up somewhere and say, yes, my name is Irving Berlin. That wasn't the name I was born with, but that's my name. You know? <laughs> um, yes. So, so they, they didn't, you know, so I'm, I, I, I think about that a lot. I, I, I don't know why, but I just think about like what her daily reality must've been like in that space. Um, but in terms of the material, I think, and, you know, this is merely my opinion, but I think there is a particular poetry in Black voices in America because of our story in America. And so when I hear the way that the phrases of Good Morning Heartache sit, mm -hmm. you know, I hear something in that that to me sounds like a black woman's experience you know it sounds it sounds like something i can touch i can tap into um i am a big believer that we are collectively the living embodiment of our histories you know that that yes obviously you share traits with your relative, you know, you have your uncle John's laugh, you know, or like there's certain things that are in your immediate family or your slightly extended family. But I believe that we carry things from, you know, 300 years ago, experiences that the people who gave birth to the people who gave birth to the people who gave birth to the people that gave birth to us had. So I think there are things in what she wrote that feel viscerally true to me. Um, and I feel that way whenever I sing poetry by black artists, you know, I, I remember when I first heard street scene mm. and I knew, I knew Kurt Vile because my parents were big Vile fans. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I knew some of the, the um, Knickerbocker, Knickerbocker holiday, mm -hmm. you know, they had that album. I knew those songs, but when I heard Lonely House, I knew that the lyricist was black. I didn't oh. know it was like some cues right away, but I knew that that, you know, even stray dogs find a friend, that specific mm -hmm. turn of phrase, that is a black person's experience in this country. Like that. Wow. So I, I think there are certain things that she wrote, and I don't think she was trying to write black, you know, she was just writing what she was writing human, writing her experience. Um, but there are certain turns of phrase that, that 
she's kind of reached me mm. in a place. Uh, and the last thing I do before I sing anytime mm-hmm. is, is sort of connect with the ancestors. Like that's the, that's my little, you know, before my foot hits the stage moment. Um, Cause there are plenty of times I'm not alone, you know, backstage um, in the dressing room, you know, we, we show up places and there's one dressing room for everybody mm-hmm. and, right. and we have to all get comfortable looking at each other's underwear. Um, <laughs> like get used to it, you know? So, so I'm not always alone, like in the prep time beforehand. Um, and I found ways to, to have my little space if I need it. Um, but in that moment, right before you step on stage, you're usually alone then, you know, that's, and so that's a moment where I just check in with what the legacy I carry. Yes. You know, I just, I, I step out there for them. Absolutely. You know, for, because I, I'm very aware that a lot of the people I come from didn't even own themselves. That's right. The only thing they could possibly own were their stories. Mm-hmm. So telling stories, sharing, you know, experiences with a room full of people is fulfilling their promise, their their existence. You know, that's what that's that's how they lived. That's how they made their mark, you know? Um, so it is carrying on that tradition. It is, it's my birthright. Be sure to catch our full conversation in Virtuosa Society podcast companion series between the bio. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. If you're intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share as well as rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the show notes for this episode's research sources, and be sure to follow at Virtuosa Society on Instagram, Facebook, and now Threads for more fascinating insight into the music and legacy of Irene Higginbotham, Dorothy Fields, and Rennell and Billie Holiday. My deepest thanks to the incomparable Natalie Douglas for her generosity of time and spirit. We could have talked for hours more. (laughs) I heartily encourage you to purchase and download her newest album recently released by Club 44 Records. And be sure to dive into our full conversation at Virtuosa Society Podcast companion series, Between the Bio. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production written and produced by me. Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser. Title music is by Anna Lonstrom.